Our text this morning comes from 2 Chronicles chapter 14 and 15. So I invite you to turn with me there in the Pew Bible, page 466. These two chapters, a little bit unusual maybe to take two chapters, but it's really one story. Second Chronicles 14, verse 1, Abijah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. And Asa, his son, reigned in his place. In his days, the land had rest for ten years. And Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He took away the foreign altars and the high places and broke down the pillars and cut down the asherim and commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, and to keep the law and the commandment. He also took out of all the cities of Judah the high places and the incense altars, and the kingdom had rest under him. He built fortified cities in Judah, for the land had rest. He had no war in those years, for the Lord gave him peace." And he said to Judah, let us build these cities and surround them with walls and towers, gates and bars. The land is still ours because we have sought the Lord our God. We have sought Him, and He has given us peace on every side. So they built and prospered. And Asa had an army of 300,000 from Judah, armed with large shields and spears, and 280,000 men from Benjamin that carried shields and drew bows." All these were mighty men of valor. Zerah, the Ethiopian, came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots and came as far as Marisha. And Asa went out to meet him, and they drew up their lines of battle in the valley of Zephathah at Marisha. And Asa cried to the Lord his God, O Lord, there is none like you to help between the mighty and the weak. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you, and in your name we have come against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God. Let not man prevail against you. So the Lord defeated the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. Asa and the people who were with him pursued them as far as Gerar, and the Ethiopians fell until none remained alive, for they were broken before the Lord and His army. The men of Judah carried away very much spoil, and they attacked all the cities around Gerar, for the fear of the Lord was upon them. They plundered all the cities, for there was much plunder in them. And they struck down the tents of those who had livestock and carried away sheep in abundance and camels. Then they returned to Jerusalem." The Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa and said to him, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin, the Lord is with you while you are with him. If you seek him, he will be found by you, but if you forsake him, he will forsake you. For a long time Israel was without the true God, true God and without a teaching priest, and without law. But when in their distress they turned to the Lord, the God of Israel, and sought Him, He was found by them. 
In those times, there was no peace to him who went out or to him who came in, for great disturbances afflicted all the inhabitants of the lands. They were broken in pieces. Nation was crushed by nation and city by city, for God troubled them with every sort of distress. But you, take courage. Do not let your hands be weak, for your work shall be rewarded." As soon as Asa heard these words, the prophecy of Azariah, the son of Oded, he took courage and put away the detestable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin and from the cities that he had taken in the hill country of Ephraim. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was in front of the vestibule of the house of the Lord. And he gathered all Judah and Benjamin and those from Ephraim, Manasseh, and Simeon who were residing with them For great numbers had deserted to him from Israel when they saw that the Lord his God was with him. They were gathered at Jerusalem in the third month of the fifteenth year of the reign of Asa. They sacrificed to the Lord on that day from the spoil that they had brought, seven hundred oxen and seven thousand sheep. And they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, with all their heart and with all their soul but that whoever would not seek the Lord, the God of Israel, should be put to death, whether young or old, man or woman. They swore an oath to the Lord with a loud voice and with shouting and with trumpets and with horns. And all Judah rejoiced over the oath, that for they had sworn with all their heart and had sought Him with their whole desire, and He was found by them, and the Lord gave them rest all around. Even Maacah, his mother, King Asa, removed from being queen mother because she had made a detestable image for Asherah. Asa cut down her image, crushed it, and burned it at the brook Kidron. But the high places were not taken out of Israel. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true all his days. And he brought into the house of God the sacred gifts of his father, and his own sacred gifts, silver and gold and vessels. And there was no more war until the 35th year of the reign of Asa. So far, the reading of God's Word and our text. In response to the preaching, we'll sing hymn 15, the stanzas 1, 2, and 3, hymn 15. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we've been seeing so far in Second Chronicles a very distinct pattern, a pattern of blessing for obedience and punishment or hardships for disobedience. This is how God had set things up in His covenant. He started that in the Old Testament period. It's still in effect today. But what do you do, brothers and sisters, when you are busy sincerely obeying the Lord, but He sends you hardship anyway? How am I supposed to understand it when it feels like the Lord is punishing me, even though all I've been doing is serving Him faithfully? You see, the Lord placed King Asa in that predicament. 
And through Asa's experiences, we may learn what he came to learn, that we have to do this to keep seeking the Lord, and He will be found by us. So that'll be our theme as I bring you the Word of God this morning. Seek the Lord, and you will find Him. Seek the Lord, and you will find Him. And we're going to invert the points as they're listed in the bulletin. We're going to first look at a heart that wholly trusts, and then a heart that's wholly true. Well, for the first time since the kingdom of Israel was divided into two, we have a clear and positive assessment by the Holy Spirit through the chronicler of a king of Judah. You might recall that King Rehoboam was kind of a mixed bag, showing some good but also doing evil. King Abijah actually gets no assessment at all from the chronicler. But here in our text, chapter 14, verse 2, the author is unequivocal about King Asa. He writes that Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. Now, we're going to see, hopefully, in a future sermon on chapter 16, that King Asa, later in life, turned from doing good and right. But certainly, in the main, Asa did what was good and what was right in the eyes of his God. And that's really the, the tricky part of the life of a believer, isn't it? Doing what's right in the eyes of the Lord. Because lots of people set out to do what's good and right as they see it. In their eyes, according to their own standard. But whose standard actually counts? Who in the end of this world will be judging the living and the dead? And let's think about that a little further. Can we humans even accurately and definitively define what is good and what is right on our own? Isn't it the case that just human way of thinking and human definitions of what is right changes. Thirty years ago, for example, in our own country, homosexuality was considered deviant. Sleeping around considered a disgrace and a shame. Smoking marijuana, immoral and illegal, and trying to change your gender? Well, something insane and unheard of. But now all of those things, they're not just tolerated in our society. They are encouraged. They are celebrated. They are enshrined in law. These very things are now called good and right by many Canadians, but God calls them wicked and perverse. These are some of the many sins for which the Son of God was sent to die and from which all are called to repent, also ourselves. That's how we have to look at those things. That's how we have to look at all things in life from God's perspective. And we have to do what is right and good in His eyes, not our own eyes. So, Asa is on a good track. Like his father Abijah before him, he has clearly been well-trained in the Scriptures, 
He knows the Torah. He knows the instruction of the law of the Lord that was given through Moses. And so what does he do? As king, he sets about to reform the church, the kingdom. We start that, it starts in verse 3. He took away the foreign altars and the high places, and he broke down the Asherim. That's quite something, isn't it? I mean, this describes the fact that there are foreign altars and Asherim. This describes the worship of pagan gods out in the open, in public, among God's covenant people. This had evidently been happening under his father Abijah's watch. And it's not that the temple worship of Yahweh was shut down or stopped. No, the people were doing both. They would be in the temple on the Sabbath day worshiping Yahweh, but then they would be in the Asherah grove on Wednesday night bowing down to another god. They, the Israelites developed a mixed worship a mixed lifestyle, serving two gods. Tell me, brothers and sisters, is what you do here on Sunday, is it consistent with what you do the other six days of the week at work, in your leisure time? Or is there some other God you are trying to please on the weekdays or on the weekend? In other words, are you seeking the Lord or are you seeking your own pleasure? That's really the, the overriding issue of our text. It's a key note all the way through these chapters and through the kingship of Asa. It's the, the note to seek the Lord, this call, seek our God. It starts in verse 4 where Asa speaks to his people and he commands Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, and to keep the law and the commandments. Well, let's think about that for a moment. What does that mean, to seek the Lord? We use that word seek in different ways. We might think, for example, of a game like hide-and-seek, where the person who is it has to go out and seek all those who have gone out into the yard and are hiding somewhere. He has no idea where that might be, so he goes searching high and low. Is that what kind of seeking is meant here? That people have to go on a search or maybe on a, on a journey to find God, that, that nobody really knows who God is or where God is located, but if we keep looking for Him somehow, we might just get lucky and, and stumble upon Him. Is that the kind of seeking that's meant? Not at all, brothers and sisters. Notice how verse 4 describes the Lord as the God of their fathers. And in the same breath adds to the element of seeking the commitment to keep the law and the commandment. Well, that implies that the Lord, that the Israelites already knew this God. He was the God of their fathers. They've met Him. They know His law. And if you think of those fathers of Israel, think of the first father, Abraham. If you want to talk about seeking, was Abraham out seeking God? What was Abraham doing? Abraham was worshiping the moon god. 
over there in Ur of the Chaldeans. God went seeking him. Humans, by nature, hate God. We, we, we rebel against God. We're not out seeking God. God comes seeking us. And when He seeks us, He brings us to Himself and He puts us in His covenant of love, and He becomes our God. That's the context here. This is the covenant relationship. He's speaking to people who have a God, who know their God, Yahweh. And brothers and sisters, if you've been baptized, then He is your covenant God too who gave you and me His laws and commandments to follow. We know Him, same as the Israelites did. From His covenant promises and from His covenant commandments, we know a number of things. We know He's a holy God. We know He's a just God, but we also know He's a merciful God, perfectly merciful alongside a perfectly just. We know He's a God who out of grace provides the forgiveness of sins, we see that in the tabernacle, Old Testament. We see it in Jesus on the cross, New Testament. He loves His people and cares for them like no other so-called God possibly could. You see, in, the context of, uh, in this context, those who seek the Lord already have a relationship with their God, and they set out to please Him by keeping His commandments. The prophet Azariah, early in chapter 15, explains this concept of seeking a little bit more when he confronts King Asa and the people, and he says, Hear me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you while you are with him. Then he adds this, and he's quoting from David in Chronicles 28, which we read, If you seek the Lord, this is verse 2, He will be found by you, but if you forsake the Lord, the Lord will forsake you. So, the opposite of seeking is forsaking. And you can't forsake somebody unless you already have a relationship with that person. What does it mean to forsake the Lord? It means to ignore His commands. It means to neglect His covenant promises. It means to go your own way and do your own thing. But to seek the Lord is the very opposite. It's to dedicate your heart, your whole heart, to following the Lord, to honoring His commandments, to embracing His promises and leaning upon them. When you seek the Lord in that way, as He's laid out for us to do, then says the Lord to us, you will find me. You will experience that I am there with you. I am near, and I am your Savior. I am your God. If you seek me, you'll find me. So, all of this King Asa had been doing, you see. And his people with him, at least in the majority, and the Lord blessed him. We read that in 14 verse 6, the Lord gave Asa peace and rest from all of his enemies. Verse 1, we're told, the rest lasted for 10 years. These are covenant blessings that flow out of grace. They're not merit. We've talked about that before. 
And more covenant blessings follow in verse 7 and 8 with the building up of fortifications in the city of, cities of Judah. You might recall how the Egyptians in the days of Rehoboam had captured and destroyed many of those same fortifications. Now the, the Lord allows King Asa to build them up. He also gives to him a large army, even larger than what Abijah had. You'll notice that from Rehoboam to Abijah to Asa, the armies get larger. That's a sign of God's blessing, His favor. And Asa knows that all of this, all of these developments are blessings, that they come from seeking God. He says it in verse 7 to the people, the land is still ours because we have sought the Lord our God. We have sought Him, and He has given us peace on every side. He knows this is blessing in the covenant. When you seek your God by following His will, He will be found by you, and you will be blessed. Or will you? You see, that's the surprising turn of events that brings about a question in verse 9. We read there, Zerah the Ethiopian came out against Asa and Judah with an army of a million men and 300 chariots, and they came as far as Marisha. Well, we've already seen in earlier sermons that military attack against Israel is one of the curses that God had threatened for covenant disobedience. It was one of God's corrective punishments. But what then is the reason for this invasion? Asa and Judah, we've just read, they're busy seeking the Lord. And God has shown His favor with ten years of peace. What's going on? Do they deserve to have the Ethiopians overthrow their land and a million of them? I mean, the last time the Egyptians came, they had 800,000. We thought that was a tremendous number. Here we've got a million. Is God angry with His people? If He's angry, why is He angry? Maybe you felt that way sometimes about your own personal circumstances, your own life. No one of us will ever claim to be sinless, but you can be going along in life in sincerity of heart, daily confessing your sins, daily seeking the blood and spirit of Christ doing your best to love God with all of your heart, doing your best to love your neighbor as yourself. Christians can be going along that track, diligent in prayer, listening to God's Word, and obeying His commandments, and despite being faithful in that way, trouble hits your life. A financial crisis, a serious ailment, sudden death of someone close to you. And there you are with your tears and your sorrow and your frustration and your questions. Why? Why, Lord? Why this? Why now? 
Why did you allow a million Ethiopians to come crashing down my door? I was just living a faithful life, not sinless, but faithful. Well, one thing we should take away from our text is this. When bad things come, it's not necessarily, it's not automatically because I've been bad. It could be. We've seen that in earlier sermons, and we should always take time to examine ourselves and don't let ourselves off the hook too easy, but not necessarily. Job's friends had to learn that lesson, and maybe we do too. God can have plenty of different reasons for sending hardship into our lives, reasons that might be hidden from us many times. We might never know. You know, Job never found out why God did what He did. We might never find out why God does what He does. Certainly, the norms of God's covenant remain the same. In the end, after a time of trouble, those troubles will pass, and God will make it so that blessings follow for obedience, just like Job was well-blessed in the end after a period of suffering. But whatever the case, when those hardships have fallen upon you, when, when suffering is at our door, seeking the Lord, that's our call, seeking the Lord means this, to keep trusting Him despite the circumstances, to trust Him with all of our heart. We might not know why God is allowing this painful thing. Is He testing me? Is He refining me? Is it for someone else's benefit that I'm not even aware of? All those things could be true. But we know God's hand is in it. It's in everything. And we know that as our covenant God, He has pledged, He's promised to do us good even through the midst of evil. And so we trust that promise. We believe that promise. We bear down on that promise just like Asa did. And we don't know if Asa particularly struggled with these kinds of questions, but we know his response to the Ethiopian invasion. We read there in verse 10 that he takes his army out. He marches his army out. It's only half the size. To meet the intruders sets up military line, and he knows he's a sitting duck, right? A million against half a million. Sets up his army, and then he does the most important thing he could do. He prays. Verse 11, he knows that of himself he can't possibly win the battle, so he does not trust in himself. Look what he says, verse, verse 11, O Lord, there is none like you to help between the mighty, those Ethiopians, and the weak, the Jews. Help us, O Lord, our God, for we rely on you. There's that verb again, to lean. We lean on you, and in your name we have come against this multitude, O Lord. You are our God. Let not man, Ethiopians, prevail against you you. When you read that prayer, does that not move your heart? Here is a heart in Asa's chest that wholly trusts 
the Lord his God, his covenant God, despite the odds against him. A million Ethiopians, 300 chariots versus 580,000 soldiers for Asa. Asa pleads with his God according to the terms of the covenant. It's a beautiful example for us to follow. Lord, you are our God. You have claimed us as your people. We lean upon you. You've told us to lean upon you. So that's what we're doing. We've come here to fight in your name, not our own name. We are yours. You are our Savior. So fight our fight and set us free just like you've promised, O Lord. And he does exactly what he promised. As Asa trusts, the Lord rises up in defense and the victory is colossal. Brothers and sisters, the God of Asa is your God. He's got all the power and he's got all the love to rise up in your defense, whatever the case, whatever the problem. So when your hardship finds you and difficulty enters your life, though you've been faithful to your God, don't give up on God. That's the temptation. Don't give up on God. Double down on your trust. Seek Him in the day of calamity. And His help will find you. Isn't that what our Lord Jesus Christ did? Asa's great-great-grandson, right? Hundreds of years in the future, in the line of David. Jesus was utterly faithful, was He not, to His heavenly Father? But yet the Father laid on Him suffering and laid on Him sorrow, the burden of your sin and mine. And like Asa, he knew his God could fight off even the strongest enemy at any moment. He once said to his disciples, don't you know I can call down 12 legions of angels and my Father would send them to fight my fight. Only Jesus would not call down 12 legions of angels. He did not ask for powerful angels. He asked of his father one thing, the power to endure the suffering and the sorrow to the fullest extent, even to death, so that all our sins could be paid for. That was the unique fight of our King Jesus. That was his battle for us, and he trusted that his father would raise him up to life from the dead and crown him with blessing, which the father did. Jesus is king in heaven, even as we speak. Asa's victory was a foreshadowing of Jesus' victory on Resurrection Day. A million men, a million enemy soldiers dead on the battlefield. That was amazing in its circumstance and context. But Jesus' victory on the cross and rising from the dead, that is earth-shattering. That is salvation for all of God's people. And because you and I believe in this King Jesus and we belong to His people, we will follow Him, yes, through the valley of suffering. We follow after Christ through suffering, but we will get to glory. So long as our heart is wholly true to our God and Savior. That's the message that 
the prophet Azariah wants to emphasize with the king and with the people. He says, the Lord is with you while you are with him. But you can't be with him if your heart is not wholly true to him. That's what gets emphasized in chapter 15, the whole matter of the heart. You can find it mentioned, the heart, three times in the chapter. In fact, the chronicler weaves this theme of heartfelt worship and heartfelt service to God all through his two books. He found it himself in the book of Deuteronomy. We had a little quote from that after the reading of the Ten Commandments, right? You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That was the clear instruction of God from the get-go. It has to be love from the heart. In other words, when God says that, He's talking about everything that's in us, your feelings, your emotions, your thoughts, whatever makes up that invisible part of you that lives in your body, all of that has to be committed to the Lord your God. Do you love the Lord your God? with your feelings, with your emotions, with your thoughts. And I want to make clear again that this is not a description of sinlessness so that somebody can say, oh, that, I could never do that perfectly because I'm a sinner. No. The Bible is not talking about sinlessness when it talks this way. Asa was not a sinless king, but look at what the Holy Spirit says about him in chapter 15, verse 17. The high places were not taken out of Israel. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true all his days. So he's a sinner, got lots of weaknesses, but his heart was wholly dedicated, wholly true. That's the thing. And you can think of how Asa would have put that into practice just as God had commanded through Moses. He would have gone to worship the Lord at the temple. And a big part of that worship was bringing an animal to, uh, to sacrifice for your sins. So he would have been there confessing his sins, confessing his guilt, seeking forgiveness in the blood of that sacrificial lamb. Well, so it is with you and me. We can also have our sins. We do have our sins and shortcomings, yet our heart can be wholly true to the Lord. You with your failings, you with your weaknesses, me with my failings and my weaknesses, weaknesses we might not even realize we have or might not realize the full extent of them. Yet, by God's power at, in work, at work in us, we may have hearts that are true, wholly true. Well, what is that exactly? It's a heart that does this, a heart that pursues the Lord God, a heart that longs for the Lord's company, a heart that wishes, desperately wishes it didn't offend the Lord with its sins. A heart that wishes it wasn't weak and sinful. A heart that wants to walk hand in hand with its God with joy and peace. A heart that can't wait, that can't wait till the fullness of Christ's kingdom comes so that at last 
That desire, that eager longing of my heart can be completely satisfied. It's a heart which says, Lord, all I want is you. All I want is you. A heart that is wholly true. You know, that's been, that had been missing so often from God's people. From the church throughout the Bible times, Azariah refers back to the days of the judges. He does that in verses 3 through 6 of chapter 15. And you know the days of the judges. That was a time, that was a really bad time for Israel, wasn't it? He says there that the priests did not teach the law, and every man did, listen to that, you know that phrase, every man did, every person did what was right in his own eyes. Exactly the opposite of what Asa did. And what happens in the book of Judges, one generation after another generation descends downward that, that spiral of wickedness and punishment, sorrow and misery. And there was little lights of, of relief along the way. God in mercy would, would send a deliverer when His people would cry out to Him. And, and His people would have some measure of repentance while that deliverer led them in faithfulness for a while. But it never lasted long, did it? Within a generation or two at most, the people of God forgot the way of the Lord. Their hearts, that's what Azariah is saying, their hearts were not wholly true. And when you read through Judges, by the time you get to the last couple of chapters, I mean, it's, it's heart-wrenching. The level of debauchery in the book of Judges, you should read it sometime just to let that debauchery sink in. The level of immorality, the level of evil among the church community, the people of God, makes you sick to your stomach what was going on. And Azariah is now saying to Asa, who knows the history, he's saying to him and to us, don't let that happen to you, King Asa. Don't let that happen to you, Ancaster, not to you and your generation. In other words, King Asa, keep doing what you've been doing and don't slack in your hand. Keep removing that false worship from among your people. Keep sending the priests out to teach for the Lord's way. Keep guiding your people in the, the pathways of God and you will be rewarded, he says in verse 7. You see, this work of reformation, it's never just a one-time thing. It's not a matter of, of pressing the reset button one day where the whole machinery of the church is paused for a, a few moments while everything reboots and, and the glitches are fixed and, and soon we are on our way again, the computer's up and running and everything's going smoothly. That's not reformation. Reformation is a process. It's an ongoing process where even as we are doing in this next seven days in a concentrated way ahead of the Lord's Supper next week, we pause to examine our hearts. We examine our conscience in the light of God's Word. And we repent of whatever disagrees in us, whatever disagrees with God's Word. And we pray for the renewal of what agrees with God's way. And then we pursue after it. That's reformation. Look at King Asa's response to, to God's prophet, verse 8 of chapter 15. As soon as Asa heard these words, he took courage 
And he put away the detestable idols from all the land of Judah and Benjamin and from all the cities that he had taken in the hill country of Ephraim. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that was in front of the vestibule of the house of the Lord. You see, the good work that Asa had started 15 years earlier, we're now 15 years into his kingship, it needed to continue. It needed to go further. It needed to go deeper. There was still idolatry in the land. There was reforming work left undone, brothers and sisters. Is there reforming work in your personal life that has yet to be done? Asa apparently had some blind spots. Which the word of the prophet helped him to see with clarity. <coughs> there was this idolatry left in the land and for some reason, the altar in front of the house of the Lord was in disrepair. So the blind spots have been removed, and he sets out to work on repenting and rooting out the evil. That leads me to ask you this question. Do you have any blind spots in your life? Could you? Is it conceivable that you have blind spots? I mean, blind spots are hard, right? Because... We don't literally see them. We don't, can't see into those areas of our lives. So can we admit that it's possible each of us has a blind spot or two or three or more? This is where the humbleness of heart has to come into play. We saw that last time with Abijah. Will you ask the Lord then to show you your blind spots? to let you see them with clarity. And once you see them, to go to work then on ridding your life of those sinful thoughts or emotions or deeds or whatever. That's reformation ongoing. And you know, the, the work of reformation has to go on even among, even if close friends or family members have to be confronted with their sin. And even if it means breaking relationships, I wondered if you noticed that, what happened to King Asa's grandmother. Verse 16, we read there about, it says mother, but we understand from earlier chapters that Maacah was his grandmother. And then Hebrew, the word mother can refer to either one generation up or two or more generations up. So Maacah was his grandmother. And it says this, verse 16, even Maaka, his grandmother, King Asa removed from being queen mother because she had made a detestable image for Asherah. Asa cut down her image, crushed it, and burned it at the brook Kidron. Can you imagine? Can you imagine the courage that took? I mean, this is his Oma. We would say Oma, a lot of us. Grandma, this is the first lady of the kingdom. She'd been around for decades by this point. Maybe not quite to the level of Queen Elizabeth, but pretty close. Held in high esteem. But Asa understood what the Lord Jesus would later say to us all. Whoever loves father or mother 
more than me is not worthy of me. It's quite something, isn't it? Let the queen mother have her little idol. Could have done it. Politically could have done it. But his heart was wholly true, you see. When push comes to shove, the holy true heart always puts the Lord ahead of family and ahead of friends. Are there people like that in your life that you may need to confront and have that discussion with? King Asa is a true shepherd king, as God calls all his kings to be. He's, he's filled with the spirit of King Jesus, at least in these two chapters, for the first 35 years of his life. He gathers all his people together, we read, and notice that, that many stream to King Asa from the northern tribes, verse 9. They come to him from Ephraim and Manasseh and Simeon, and the reason is they saw that the Lord his God was with him. They saw that. God was with Asa, prospering and blessing Asa. When you and I walk with integrity, with God in integrity, when we give him wholehearted devotion, then he is with us. And people see that. People see that. And fellow believers are drawn to that, and they join us in that work of reformation. That's what's going on here at the end of the chapter. Led by the king, the people come together in Jerusalem and they renew their vows to their God. They covenant with God afresh, verse 12, and they entered into a covenant to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, with all their heart and with all their soul. Isn't that, isn't that a wonderful thing to behold? I mean, think about that, all these hundreds of thousands of of people of Israel from the south and the north pledging themselves. They swore an oath. They shout aloud. Joy is ringing through the air. And why are they so joyful? It says in verse 15, why? For they had sworn with all their heart and they had sought him with their whole desire. And here it comes. And he was found by them. He was found by them. They had gone to search him out again in the covenant way, and he was found by them. Brothers and sisters, he will be found by you too. Seek him, and you will always find him. Set your heart on, on loving your God, and you will discover that all along he has been loving you. Do what we'll sing in hymn 15. Do this. Make straight what long was crooked. Make the rougher places, make them plain. Let your hearts be true and humble as befits His holy reign. Amen.